Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Today, we have the Mecca Summit, the Peace Summit for the Ukraine war falling apart. We have the wildfires in Maui. And then we have Russia continuing its offensive across the front. All that and more coming up. let's get into the rapid fire news so we have oil deposits being found in niger uh don't let the united states find out about that (laughs) isn't it crazy how that is a meme how the united states always wants other people's oil even though we have more resources here than we know what to do with it's so strange to me it's so strange to me and i know i'm uh, going way off the t- the topic of oil being found in Niger, but it's just so strange to me how when you listen to people talk about, uh, say, Africa or Afghanistan and, and Ukraine and the resources that they have, the natural resources, be it mineral energy or otherwise, or rare earth in the case of Afghanistan and um, western parts of Ukraine, uh, it's always about, oh, uh, the United States, we should have been controlling that. It's like, Why? <laughs> Why? Why would we need to do that? It's like they act as though the United States was some broke bum country that had no natural resources to our name. It's like, no, we have rare earth. We have oil. We have natural gas. We have coal. We we have food. We have lots of arable land. We have lots of fresh water. We have plenty of uh, iron, zinc. We We have it all. We have it all. And yet we're just not using it. And because we have these ideologues in our government who are pathologically opposed to the United States using its own resources, it incentivizes the sort of, well, for lack of a better term, neo-colonial ways of thinking where we have, well, okay, we need to take resources from other people. It's like no one's interested in trade. We want to steal the resources from other people. And it's like, but why? when we have them right here and no one has to die extracting the resources here whereas you want to go fight a war to take someone else's resources we want we we will refuse to pull our troops out of syria because we're afraid of the of isis getting control of the oil okay but the syrian army is the one requesting control of the territory no we can't let you have that yeah you you can't let me have access to my resources like it's so it's so crazy it's so crazy but the, anyway oil has been discovered in niger making them an even more resource rich country than they already were they had lots of gold uh did they have diamonds i'm not entirely certain about the diamonds but i know they had gold i know they had uranium and some other mineral resources but I'll, i'm blanking on what that was but they're a very mineral a resource rich country and now they have energy resources you can you pair this i'm telling you right now you pair the massive resource deposits of niger with the belt and road and perhaps even uh the russian educational and energy infrastructural development projects that the russians are pursuing throughout africa and you will have a regional power 
not quite in the same vein as Nigeria, uh, Nigeria, not Niger, Nigeria, they're, they're neighbor to the South. Nigeria has like 10 times Nigeria's population. Nigeria has like 25 million and Nigeria has over 200 million. So in the event that uh, they do go to war, uh, it's uh, Niger would be in for the fight of its life. But assuming a peacetime scenario here, which I think the peace is going to prevail, given what we'll talk about later on, uh, with all these resources that Niger has, if you combine that with the infrastructure and energy development that the Chinese and the Russians are offering, plus the, the, the training that the Russians are offering alongside that as their complementary program to the Belt and Road, which would enable them to utilize their own resources and to extract and refine their own resources. Niger could easily become a major hub of refined uh, goods, uh, refined energy and mineral resources, I mean, which would percolate throughout the rest of the region. Very it, In a way, they'd almost be like a, a gas hub, like Turkey has agreed to become with Russia. Niger, with their own resource deposits, could become a, a oil and energy hub for the neighboring states in other countries. And I'd imagine that the countries who are going to get preferential access to the electricity generated from any power plants running on Niger's oil deposits are going to be Mali and Burkina Faso because they didn't threat that. And not just did they not threaten to intervene against Niger, but they stood by Niger. So very smart move, assuming nothing goes wrong. Like that, that bet has the potential to pay out massively if peace uh, remains. If there's a war, it might not go too well for them. But we'll we'll, we'll see how that plays out. It's still a bit uh, touch and go. But uh, speaking of the situation with Niger and the intervention, there still is no intervention. Uh, ECOWAS has not yet done anything about the coup in Niger, although troops have been mobilized on both sides, uh, Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, they've been calling up troops, the ECOWAS states, they've been calling up troops. So it, it the escalation is still there, but we'll see if it boils over into a hot war or some sort of conflict or perhaps even just a border conflict. We'll see, but now that's two ultimatums gone by, the ECOWAS ultimatum as well as the African Union ultimatum, both of which have come and gone now. And I'm recording this on Monday, so if something happens on Tuesday, please forgive me. <laughs> but yeah, two ultimatums come and gone. And like I said on last week's episode, it appears as though the bluff has been called. And Niger has emerged triumphant for the time being. So we'll see. We'll definitely see. Uh, what else do we have? What else do we have? France still threatening intervention as well. Uh, and Putin has even warned against an intervention. So very clearly the situation in Niger has the potential to become yet another proxy war between the West and the multipolar world order. Very, very easy. Like if this war goes down and if the sides shake out in the way that it looks like the sides of the war are going to be shaking out, it, you're going to have Ukraine 2.0, except 
would it be easier? Uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's that's a lot of military power being put against Niger, but I suppose they'd really only have to deal with the Nigerians and perhaps the French. But here's the thing, NATO's been so exhausted and drained from its fight in Ukraine, especially when it comes to equipment and ammunition. Would there be, because France is constantly threatening to get involved here, would there even be an effective response from France at this point in the game? Do they have the capacity to do that? Because that's a question which now has to be raised after all the commitment that's been made to Ukraine. And in time, even that question's even going to have to be posed of the United States. I don't think we're quite there yet. I don't think we're that depleted yet. But we are confirmed to be out of 155 millimeter shells. And by out, it means really, 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 really low. So does NATO, let alone France by itself, even have the ability to intervene in a meaningful way here? I imagine we could drop a bomb or two, but could France put boots on the ground? I don't know. I don't know. It's So with that taken into account, there is a possibility that Niger and its regional alliance might still have a potential of coming out on top. Uh, it, it's out there. Uh, again, we'll just have to wait and see. But that's something to think about. The, the depletion of the military capabilities of certain countries. It's definitely something to, to take into account here. Uh, and while we're still on the subject, Iran is open to giving aid to Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso in the event of an ECOWAS uh, intervention. So, yeah, super duper proxy war. If it kicks off, we'll see if it kicks off. But I'll, I'll leave it there. In other news, we have China being accused of starting the fires in Maui, and we'll talk about those fires in a minute when we get into the meat of the episode. But they, the China's been accused of using lasers to start the fires in Maui. We have Sam Bankman-Fried, or, or as the folks over at Rogue News call him, Scam Bankrupt Fraud. <laughs> he, he's been sent to jail uh, after his bail got revoked. And if you don't remember who Sam uh, Bankman-Fried is, or Scam, he, he, he was the guy who was the head of FTX, which was that, that money laundering machine that was marketed as a, a safe crypto exchange. Yeah. He's that guy, and he's now going to jail. So, uh, I guess some justice was to be had. Now, how long he goes to jail? Ha <laughs> ha That's the million-dollar question. But we uh, also have Poland deploying 2,000 additional troops to their border with Belarus. Uh, they, I don't know what it is with Poland and Belarus. They, ever since the 2020 election in Belarus... Poland has just been up Belarus's ass. Like, I don't know what it is. And it's only, it's been like a, it's sort of been snuffed out. The oxygen of that has been taken out of the room by the larger conflict going on, on in Ukraine. But even throughout the entire war in Ukraine, you've had Poland and Lithuania, especially, just constantly agitating, not just against Russia, but against Belarus. And it's... One could say that they're trying to open up some sort of second front, although is it really a second front if 
the, the fight is in the exact same direction. And it's these agitations that are probably one of the reasons why Wagner and a large contingent of the Russian military uh, has been deployed to Belarus. Because it's very clear that Belarus, by way of association with Russia, is in danger of inheriting Russia's enemies, which all happen to be on Belarus's borders. So either way that goes, uh, I'm not saying that there's going to be a war between Poland and Belarus, but the tensions are there. And if the war in Ukraine does escalate because of some, uh, I don't know, some peacekeeping operation in Western Ukraine, because Poland's also been involved in those type of talks and those type of discussions. If the conflict enlargens, it will immediately encompass Belarus and Poland. So Russia has an army there. And Poland, responding in kind, has put more troops on the border. Which increases the chance of some event going down that could be used to justify uh, a, an enlargening of the war. Which, if it were to happen at all, it would come from NATO, because NATO is losing. And they might come eventually, at some point, come to the estimation, if we have all of NATO fight a war against Russia, instead of having the Ukrainians fight the war for us, we can win with the Ukrainian. And again, if you put yourself in the shoes of someone who believes the propaganda, Russia's been beaten and bloodied in Ukraine. They, they've, uh, the Ukrainians are taking land back. Uh, they, the Russians, they can't push Ukraine. They're taking these heavy losses. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a really bad slugging match. And the, the Russians are just, they're demoralized and they're, they have incompetent leadership. They don't have good logistics, and they 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 had a they had a coup. There was an attempted coup with the Wagner boys. Uh, Russia's just ready to collapse at any moment, and perhaps at some point down the line, people who believe that in our government will go all the way and say, "All right, Russia's been softened up enough. It's time to send in NATO, put the boots on the ground, and." finish them off, or so they would think, and then you'll have a broader war. It's a possibility. Uh, it's a possibility. I can never underestimate the ability of certain people to do stupid things. Uh, but it is an, a danger that I'm acutely aware of, and with these troops being positioned on the border, it's it grows even more likely, especially as people continue to lie to themselves about what's happening in Ukraine. Or maybe I'm just wrong, you know, just, you know never discount that. But uh, uh, while we're talking about Ukraine, we have um, Ukraine evacuating 37 towns and villages, 37 towns and villages near the city of Kharkov. Why? It's because of the threat of Russian artillery, because Russia's troops are advancing onto Kharkov. And apparently they've... It, gained enough ground incrementally that they've just crept and crept and crept and crept and now these towns and these settlements surrounding Kharkov are within artillery range of the Russians and are under threat of being uh, taken by Russian troops and so now people are being evacuated and we'll we'll get more into that Russian offensive later on in the episode but last but not least we have Victoria Newland visiting Niger she visits Niger, probably threatens some sort of intervention 
We she's quite the warmonger. <laughs> and then they told her, uh, keep the money. Cause she was saying, hey, if you if you don't stop this, if you don't put the the deposed president uh Mohammed Bazoum, if I'm not mistaken, uh, yep, Mohammed Bazoum, if you don't put him back into power, we're gonna we're gonna sanction you, we're gonna we're stop giving you money, we're gonna do this and that, and we might there might be a war, you wouldn't want a war. And they told her, you can keep the money. Your people will thank you for it. And then they told her to go on a diet. <laughs> they told her to go on a diet. And that's just, that's disrespectful. <laughs> but you know what? It's well-deserved. Considering who she is, it's incredibly well-deserved. But that is the rapid fire. And we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of today's episode. And we're going to start with the Mecca Summit, the Peace Summit in Mecca, uh, or the fake Peace Summit in Mecca, as I would like to call it. Because what else would you call a Peace Summit that excludes one of the only two parties in the war? There's only two parties in the war. There's Ukraine and there's Russia. And Russia wasn't invited. And the point of the peace was to try to get, or at least the aims of the people who organized the summit, were to try to get Russia to relinquish the territories that they've given Ukraine. But you're not going to have Russia present there for them to... Oh, These people don't know diplomacy. I'll just, I'll just start by saying that. They don't know diplomacy. They, they think they know, but they don't. And that's the danger. That's the dangerous thing about them. They think they know diplomacy, but they don't. They think that by having all these countries meet in Mecca and having Ukraine lay out its peace plan, that they're going to create this international pressure to force Russia to make peace, even though everyone already knows what the deal is. And quite frankly, a lot of the countries that showed up to the summit um are not hostile to russia in the slightest in fact they're more likely to be in on the side of russia if anything else russia's been playing one hell of a diplomatic game while the war has been going on it i really really don't see what they're planning to achieve here <laughs> excuse me I don't see what they were planning to achieve here. Because it's not like Russia and Ukraine have been the only ones talking about peace. Well, if you're on the side of Ukraine, it's not as if Zelensky was the only person proposing peace. A number of the countries that showed up to the delegation had already proposed their own peace plans, and many of which included Ukraine giving up land. So how exactly you were going to bridge that gap between them with their own plans that they had come out with individually over the course of the war, how are you going to bridge the gap where they, independently of you, come up with peace plans that involve Ukraine giving up land? How are you going to bridge the gap between that and Ukraine getting back all the territory that it wants and then imposing that on Russia? I don't know how they, I, I don't know how they were going to do that. The Duran speculates that this summit was supposed to be a part of the, the narrative of the great counteroffensive where Ukraine was supposed to break through the Russian defenses, 
and score these massive victories. And then after the string, after those string of victories, after all those gains, we were going to have this, this summit to sort of build off that momentum and create the impression that Russia was just uh, falling apart. And that the, the, the tides that turned, not just on the battlefield, but diplomatically, and you know, there's probably a good deal of credence to that, given the given what we know about the people that we're dealing with and how they obsess over narrative, even when reality has other things to say, they obsess over narrative. But I really don't see what was trying to be achieved here. How do you how do you come to the conclusion that you're going to get all these countries to go along with Zelensky's peace plan when some of them again came out with their own peace plans and of which, uh, ironically. Arabia was one, and they proposed their own peace during this summit. Uh, they were supposed to just shut up and be quiet in the background and be the host of this. No, they came up and proposed their own peace plan, which yet again was a peace involving Ukraine giving up part of its territory to Russia. It's, and that's that's the, that's the international consensus when it comes to the peace that Ukraine is just going to have to give up territory. And it's only Ukraine and the West who can't accept that. It's only us. Only us. We're the only ones who can't accept that. Everybody else has already come to the conclusion that if you don't give up the territory, there's not going to be a peace. Oh, well, not without the total annexation of Ukraine anyway. There's not going to be a negotiated settlement. If you're not going to do that, you're losing. Everyone else in the world views Ukraine as losing the war. Or, or Ukraine is being in a really bad position to where they can't necessarily win the war. That's where the international consensus is. It's only in the hyper-propagandized West, in Europe, Britain, United States, where we entertain ideas of Ukraine getting this grand victory over Russia, the final victory, as some might call it. But... It's our view is not based on reality, especially when we talked about the offensive and it's objective failure. It's objective failure. You've gained a hundred plus square kilometers of land, a hundred plus square kilometers. And give me a second. I'm going to, I'm going to translate that into civilized for you people. (laughs) Ukraine over the course of the two and a half months that they've been at this offensive, they have gained 100 square kilometers. 100 square kilometers. That's it. That's all. And we'll, we'll cover that a little bit more in detail on the third topic when we talk about Russia's uh, offensive. But 100 square kilometers, a little, a little bit more, out of the 87,000 that Russia still holds on to. And they lost how many armored vehicles? How many tanks? Like, and how many men? They lost tens of thousands of men. It's crazy. It is actually crazy. So they've gained, uh, and I've translated that from uh, uncivilized to civilized, they've gained around 62 square miles. After two and a half months of fighting, after throwing away... 200 plus tanks. I, I, I don't know the exact number anymore. It's, 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 beyond, it's beyond me. 
they've uh, thrown away four to five, maybe even more than that, hundred armored vehicles. And these were numbers we had uh, a month ago. They've thrown away all this and lost tens of thousands of people to gain 62 square miles. That's not a win. 62 square miles out of, let's see, 87,000, out of 54,000 square miles that Russia controls. That's an L. That's an L. There's there's no way around that. There's no covering that up. There's no putting a Band-Aid on that. There's no sugarcoating that. There's no dressing it up and putting makeup on it, making it. There's no way past that. That is an L. There's no other interpretation to be had. That is, an, that is objectively an L. And a pricey one at that. How do you come back from that? And again, we'll talk more about that later on, but this is the situation on the ground as we come, that, that this is the situation on the ground that forms the context behind which we are having these peace summits in Mecca. Ukraine losing. Ukraine throwing it all on the line and getting nothing in exchange. That's the context, that's the backdrop to this peace summit where you are demanding everything from the Russians who have just annihilated your offensive for two months straight. It's unrealistic. It's incredibly unrealistic. And I went over, I went over why I didn't view this as a legitimate peace summit, which primarily being one that you're losing, you you can't make demands of the side that's winning when you're losing. And then two, how are you going to make demands of Russia when Russia's not even at the summit? Russia wasn't invited. Out of all the countries that sent delegations, out of all 40 of them, uh, it which included all the BRICS nations minus Russia, it included Indonesia, it included Mexico, and even Egypt, to name a few big boys, uh, Erdogan had some comments on it, <clears throat> Erdogan being the president of Turkey, but you had all these, these major countries except for Russia. Everyone's there except for Russia. Now, China didn't send its, Xi Jinping didn't go, but he sent a delegation for an affairs. Uh, there's a, there was a very specific department whom he had sent a delegation to this summit. But the international consensus is that Ukraine can't win. The international consensus is that, is that Ukraine has to give up territory if it wants a negotiated settlement. And everyone can see that Ukraine has uh, lost, uh, they've suffered ir irreparable losses in this offensive that has failed. You cannot then, after not inviting the other side, talk about you're wanting to make a peace and you want to get back everything that you've lost in the war without consulting the side currently holding that territory. Like it'd be one thing if Russia was there and they said, hey, 
We want all the territory back. What do you need from us? Just lay it out on the table. What do you need from us? We're willing to lay down our arms. What do you need from us? We want our territory back. We know we, it'd be one thing if they accepted and came to terms with the fact that they can't get it back through force of arms. They can't force the Russians out of Ukraine. They can't do it. Okay. Well, the only way you get that territory back and the first you have to accept that you can't take it back through military force. Once you accept that, then you can go, okay, well, how can we get it back? The Russians have to give it. How do we get Russia to give it to us if we can't force them? Because you can't force them. You can't sanction them. They're unsanctionable. You can't beat them on the battlefield. You've already lost. You can't outflank them diplomatically because they've been playing, they've, well, they've been playing one hell of a diplomatic game. I said it earlier, but they've been doing a really good job of keeping other countries on their side or neutral in this conflict. So you can't outflank them diplomatically and try to apply pressure. You're not going to be able to sever their connection with China. You can't force them out militarily. How can you get that territory back if the Russians have to consent to giving it to you? You have to negotiate. What do you need from us in exchange for our territory back? Everything's on the table. That's the only way Ukraine's going to get that territory back if the Russians are even going to get it. If the Russians even feel like giving it back to them at this point. Because I've, I've said it many times over the course of this conflict that Ukraine has demonstrated an unwillingness and inability to adhere to any agreement that it signs, particularly that the ones that it signs with the Russians. And if you can't be trusted to abide by a treaty, then why should we bother with a negotiated settlement? And I was saying this back when the war first started. If, if Ukraine has this history of not abiding by the treaties that it signs and the agreements that it makes with Russia, well, then what reason do the Russians have of stopping until they've cleared, until they've cleaned house completely. Now, Putin has been a lot more lenient, but as the war has gone on, the pressure within Russia itself to just fight to the finish has grown. It hasn't weakened. And you have an inverse relationship in the United States where, quite frankly, for the right reason, we're getting tired of this shit. It has nothing to do with us. So while our willingness to be involved is going down, Russia's willingness to finish the fight is going up because they're, they're fed up. They're done with Ukraine. They're done with the Ukrainian state. And if that means that they have to annex damn near all of Ukraine, then they're going to do it. And I was saying this back in the beginning of the war, just going off of Russia's stated war aims. How can you denazify Ukraine without first conquering all or a large swath of it? How can you demilitarize Ukraine without taking basically all of the country? You can't. You have to have a de facto control over the entire country. Because you can't let the Ukrainians be in charge of demilitarization. You can't let the Ukrainians be in charge of denazification. You think the Nazis are just going to go, oh, I guess that's it for me. I got to walk away. No. You have to be in charge of that, of that process if you're going to do it at all. And I was saying this back in February and March of 2022. So here we are today, after multiple attempts at peace 
have come and gone, most notably uh, the peace that was almost achieved less less than a month after the war began. In, you know, 2022, March, April of 2022, that draft treaty that the Ukrainians initialed, that they didn't fall through on, the, the treaty that had a stipulation where Russia was going to withdraw its troops from the north of Ukraine as a, as a symbol of goodwill, as a gesture of goodwill, and then Ukraine continues the fight and pretends that that was some great offensive that they conducted, where they push Russia out. All these peace agreements, all, Minsk 1, Minsk 2, unofficial Minsk 3, which was that treaty in March that I just talked about, all these agreements broken. Why would Russia even want to make a treaty with you? It's, it's incredible that Putin's even open to the possibility after how untrustworthy the Ukrainians have proven to be, at least from the perspective of the Russians. Why would you sign a treaty with them when you, when they have a clear history of not abiding by those treaties and breaking their agreements with impunity? And especially when you know what them breaking the agreements of this treaty is going to be. It's going to be them be joining NATO, joining the EU, remilitarizing, rearming, and doubling down on their pathologically hostile stances towards Russia. And I, again, I said it early on, if Ukraine loses the war, but there's still a rump state Ukraine, they're going to be more incentivized to join NATO. Because Ukraine, when it was stronger, lost a war to a Russia that was weaker. If Russia takes Ukrainian territory, that means Russia gets bigger and stronger. If Ukraine loses territory, they get smaller and weaker. So if Russia wins, and there's some a negotiated settlement where Russia gets to keep certain amounts of territory, Ukraine's going to have even more incentive to join NATO if they're an independent nation. Because now you have a smaller and weaker Ukraine living next door to a larger and stronger Russia who just beat you in a war. That's why I didn't see how Ukraine made it to the other side of this conflict. I thought, and I still believe, that in the end, Ukraine's just going to cease to exist. But given all these peace summits, these attempts at solving it, it's only the Ukrainians and the West who cannot come to terms with reality. With reality, we're the only ones. Everyone else is like, okay, you have to give up land. And again, it's, it's a shock that the Russians are even willing to negotiate at all, even though they're not invited to this, this peace summit here. But it's, it's so detrimental to the Ukrainians, not to anybody, and to nobody else but the Ukrainians. They are the ones who are taking the biggest L here. And everybody knows it. And yet they come to these fake peace talks demanding everything from Russia. They, they want to demand everything from Russia, but they don't want Russia to be there to hear them make the demands. They don't have the humility to say, we've lost. What do you need from us in exchange for our territory back? And again, there's the chance, there's the chance that Russia might give it back if you agree to certain stipulations. I'm not entirely sure. But if there was ever a chance, you're not going to get that chance by fighting Russia. You're going to get that chance by coming to Russia and saying, look, 
everything's on the table. What do you need from us? We want our territory back. That's the only way. But that would first require you to accept the reality that you can't force Russia out militarily, you can't outflank them diplomatically, and, well, no one else thinks that you can win the war. You have to accept that reality first if you were to do the one thing that might possibly get you your territory back. But they don't want to do it. Instead, we have these fake peace summits, which fell apart because everyone else had their own ideas about how the peace was going to go. And damn near everybody, uh, aside from Ukraine, of course, said that Ukraine was just going to have to give up territory. And then the day after the summit ended, because it went on for a little while, the day after the summit ends, Ukraine comes out saying that it would not negotiate with Russia anymore. <laughs> they, they they just wouldn't negotiate at all. And, and that it would intensify their efforts in the war. And we have statements from uh, Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitro Kuleba. Uh, their foreign minister, he stated, quote, if and when Kiev decides to negotiate with Moscow, it will not do so with Russian President Vladimir Putin, end quote. And he continues by saying that Putin, quote, has committed too many serious crimes. It is clear to us that we will never be able to see Putin and Zelensky sitting at the same table, end quote. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll continue. I'll finish his statements before I jump in here. Kuleb also said that they'd negotiate with Russia. Uh, they would negotiate with Russia, just not with Putin. But first on the condition, Russia first has to meet the condition that Russia withdraws all their troops from Ukraine. Then they'll be willing to negotiate with Russia, but not with Putin in charge. So they have to get rid of Putin and they have to pull all their troops out of Ukraine. Uh, to which I might ask, what exactly would there be to negotiate at that point? Again, it's so unrealistic. They, and, let, me, let me finish before, let me finish before I... Before I go on my my fully fledged rant here, because I can feel the rant building up, I just... <laughs> Kuleba then goes on to say, and Dimitro Kuleba, he then goes on to say that quote, the counteroffensive will soon give us victories, and we will continue to fight. We have no alternatives. End quote. He finishes that statement by saying quote, it's not easy for our soldiers to advance, but we will. Our military capabilities are growing while Russia's are decreasing. Uh, and then he, he also says that Ukraine was counting on, is counting on the fact that the war will end in our favor at some point. So to summarize that, we had a peace summit. Russia wasn't invited. Ukraine didn't get its way. And now they've ruled out negotiations completely because they got humbled by everyone there saying, you're going to have to give up territory if you want peace. You're going to have to give up territory if you want peace. Hey, you can't win. You throw in the towel, give up the territory if you want peace. And they didn't like, they didn't, they did not like that shit. They said, you know what? We're just not going to negotiate. <laughs> we're, we're just not going to negotiate. They didn't get their way. Now they've ruled out negotiations because they don't like Putin and they'll only talk to those meanies, those stupid meanies, if they get rid of Putin. Hmm. It, 
They're children. They're children. These people. And I'm not even just talking about the Ukrainians. I'm talking about everybody. Everybody on the the pro-Ukraine side of this conflict, ranging from the Ukrainians, the Europeans, the the British, the and uh, the Americans, they're all children. They're all children, bro. Like, what is this? They're and they're just so emotionally invested. Uh, they they can't accept any reality, any hard reality that they don't like. Ukraine can't win the war against Russia. They they charge into a minefield, get blown half to death, and then by the time they decide to retreat, the Russians have uh, filled the hole with more mines. They've deployed more mines behind your fort of behind the formation. So when you retreat, you just walk into another minefield. It's They've gained a hundred square kilometers out of 87,000 in exchange for two and a half months, hundreds of tanks, hundreds of armored vehicles, and tens of thousands of men. There's and their response to that is to hold a summit where they don't invite the Russians and yet demand things from the side that's winning the war. We're delusional. That's what it is. We're delusional. And on top of that, we're emotional. Too emotional for any form of rational dialogue. Up to and including peace talks. And the result of our leadership's failure to behave like adults is anywhere from 600,000 to 800,000 Ukrainians being made into casualties of this war. It's insane. And mind you, this war could have ended nine years ago had we embraced the Minsk Accords and had we forced Ukraine to embrace the Minsk Accords instead of enabling them to walk around them as though they didn't exist. A war that could have ended in April of last year had we not sabotaged the negotiations and sabotaged that draft treaty that the Ukrainian delegation had already signed. The the war was almost over. We wouldn't, we wouldn't even need to be having these discussions in Mecca about Ukraine getting all of its territory back had we done literally nothing and had the Ukrainians accepted peace back in March. And they wouldn't have had to accept peace back in March where they gave up the Donbass and Crimea. They wouldn't have needed to accept that had they accepted Minsk too back in 2015. They would have had all their territory. They, we, we literally would not be having this discussion right now had they gone along with the peace that was laid out to them by Minsk too. Had they given autonomy to the Donbass, they would have kept all of their territory, especially if they had done it early enough. And yet here we are, where it's just one declined peace deal after the next, And now when the deal being offered to you isn't to your liking because you declined all the the deals that were better for you, now you want to go back to, you want to turn back the clock to the way it was before. You can't get that. 
You can't get that. That's not how that works. And nobody in Ukraine is willing to accept that reality. They would rather sit there, cross their arms, and puff out their cheeks than to admit that they've lost. Than to admit that, you know what, we can't get the territory back by force. We have to negotiate. We have to talk to the other side. And our leadership in the United States is no better, unfortunately, because we enable this childish behavior because we reward them with billions and tens of billions and hundreds of billions of dollars. It's a damn shame. It really is a damn shame. But we'll, we'll, we'll move on. We'll move on. Because now we have the wildfires in Maui to talk about. Which, as of now, and the, the death toll keeps going up, so I'm, I might be off by a few people. Uh, as of now, the wildfires in Maui, Hawaii, have killed 89 people. And if, uh, over 1,000 people are missing. Like, it's... Yeah, it's... I don't even know. Like, it's such a peculiar situation, a, a peculiar disaster to be in. Where you have fires, and then people go missing, because a lot of people were swimming. They they ran to to the water as the fires were raging, and then they go out to sea. And a lot of them just ended up drifting away from the island and had to get picked up by the Coast Guard. Uh, Around 100 or so people have been caught and recaptured by the, the Coast Guard. Which, good on the Coast Guard for doing their job and being there where they are needed instead of in the Taiwan Strait, instead of in the Gulf of Persia, where we have these amphibious assault ships and this carrier that just got sent over there. And we talked last week about the U.S. and their retarded plan. <laughs> their Well, their retarded idea, I won't say a plan. It's, it's a retarded idea of potentially putting troops on board civilian vessels deter Iran from shooting at them. Uh, you want more on that, listen to last week's episode uh, or any one of the uh, the mini-episodes. I'm pretty sure I broke it up into mini-episodes. So you can cut straight to that topic if you like. But those ships are over in the Persian Gulf when they could be over here. Could you imagine how much easier it would be to find people lost at sea if we had, I don't know, a carrier or two sending up drones and fighter pilots and helicopters to go locate people who drifted out to sea? How many lives could we save? If we used America's military for Americans. J- j- you know, just, just a radical thought, just a radical thought. But it's it's crazy. And the, the death toll, again, keeps climbing. The, the, missing, the missing persons number keeps climbing. But again, thank God the Coast Guard doing their damn job because I guess somebody has to somebody's got to it's it's insane but like clockwork like clockwork we have a whole lot of chaos here on the mainland politically speaking because like clockwork the right has already begun blaming China for a problem Uh, I brought it up earlier on in the rapid fire that people are accusing China of starting the fires using lasers which, uh, you know, I suppose 
can't be ruled out. Although I am of the stance that we're blaming China for a problem, which if it was man-made was more likely to have been caused by our own government than a foreign one. Like that, that's the point that our government's at. And if you don't believe me, look at the response that our government has had to our country every time our country has a disaster. They do not care. They literally, they hate you. And they have made it so abundantly clear ever since that. (laughs) Ever since that fraud in chief came to power, they've just made it abundantly clear. They said, fuck you, fuck everything you believe in, uh, kiss my ass. That's been their response every time anything bad's happened to America. There's a there's a, a foreign object in our airspace. Let's just let it fly over the entire country. We don't know what's on it. We don't know what it could be. We know where it is. We know where it's going. We, we know everything about it. We're just not going to do anything about it. We're just going to let it fly over our country, fly over our military installations, fly over our cities. It, it, that thing could have been carrying a disease. It could have been carrying anything. Thankfully, it wasn't, but we didn't know that. We're just going to let that fly over the country. Oh, it got spotted over Montana. Uh, We're going to shoot it down. Okay, we're going to shoot it down. We're going to wait for it to cross the entire country. Shoot it down in the waters off of South Carolina. You know, yeah. yeah. We're protecting Americans. Even though we could have did that over the Pacific Ocean, we're going to wait for it to cross the entire country and get to the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, what's that? A train derails in Palestine, Ohio? ta ha ha Uh, And you burn the chemicals. Oh, wow. What a brilliant move. You burn the chemicals that spilled out. And now you have uh, fallout new Palestine in Ohio. We're not going to do anything about that. We're just going to sit here and pretend it doesn't happen. We're on vacation. Okay, we're on vacation. You can't bother us because we're on vacation. It's me time, says Poot Buttigieg. Poot Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg. My mistake. Not that anyone should bother remembering his name, because apparently that uh, apparently that guy's uh, not working in our government. According to him, he's on vacation. Okay. And now here we have a wildfire in Maui. We're about to have hurricane season in the South. And these people are just nowhere to be found. They don't they don't have shit to say. And it's crazy. They literally hate you. They literally hate you. They hate all every single one of us. And they want us to know that they hate us. And they demonstrate it with their actions. Like, so when I say that, no, it wasn't China, it was probably your own government, it's not just the pattern of behavior of our government doing these things, like 9-11, all the the two agents of the CIA, the recruits of the CIA who were in those planes, the FBI knew everything there was to know about these people before, and it's well documented. There's literally documentaries on the, the FBI no, knowing this. They knew what was going to happen, and yet they just sat there twiddling their thumbs and allowed it to go down. Did literally nothing. The FBI knew about it. The CIA trained these fuckers. And... 
oops oh no i guess now we have to go to war with the middle east even though it was your own government that, that orchestrated that and that's going to be hard for a lot of people to accept especially people living in new york who lo- lost somebody from that shit but our own government is more likely to perpetrate something like this against us than china and that's a fact so when we talk about the fires potentially being started by a person it is more likely that that person is on the payroll of some agency in in our government than it is that they were an uh, agent of China. It's more likely uh, uh, that they were on our payroll, paid for by our taxes. Ironically, it's more likely that that's the case than the Chinese using lasers. And uh, I'll leave it there. But again, even the suspicions don't stop there. Because the, suspicions have been raised about the specific location of the fires uh, in that the homes of people who didn't want to sell their houses to the big real estate agencies, their homes have been burned down. And this is prime real estate, which is why they were uh, offering to be bought out. Now their homes are destroyed. And it's, it just so happens to conveniently be on this strip of prime real estate overlooking the ocean. Hmm. The same real estate that the the big real estate agencies wanted to get their hands on, but that people wouldn't sell their homes for. Hmm. Hmm. I wonder. Again, if it was anybody, it was our own government. We know how they are with robbing robbing their own people blind. <coughs> Ukraine <coughs> money laundering. We know. We know how it goes. We know how it goes. But we have. All this going down, all, all this wild speculation, some of it wild, some of it not so wild. I mean, uh, I'm guilty of speculation myself. I just speculated that our own government has a, a greater potential of being behind this. But amidst all this, amidst nearly 100 people dying, a 1,000 people being missing, and a, a good portion of which probably being dead as well, but we can't confirm the kill. And does a hundred plus people just drifting out to sea and that we know of because they got they got rescued by the Coast Guard. Amidst all this going on. Not a tweet. Not a tweet. People complain about Trump's mean tweets. Oh, I, I bet people wish that they got I got so much as a tweet as a tweet now. Could because once again, our esteemed fraud in chief is nowhere to be found on the issue that matters for Americans. Nowhere to be found. No, again, not a tweet, no statement, no visit, no aid, no nothing. No nothing. Because that nigga was on vacation. And when asked about the situation in Hawaii, he had the audacity to say, and I quote, no comment. No comment. That is worse. Hmm. I'm trying to think if that's worse than when Mike Pence, in response to Tucker saying, American cities are falling apart. Why are you you more concerned about Ukraine than about American cities? Where's the concern for Americans in that? I'm, I'm trying to think if Pence's response, you know, that's not my concern. Where's your concern for Americans? That's not my concern. I'm trying to think of that or no comment is worse. 
I'm 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 really trying to piece together which one is worse. And I think it might be Biden. It, it, and it's a close one. Don't get me wrong. I'm I'm not saying that just because I really don't appreciate having Biden in charge. I'm saying that because he is allegedly the president. And his response to a a crisis, a disaster, that is uh, that has that's gotten people comparing Hawaii, what's going on in Hawaii, to Pompeii. Because people love their Rome analogies when it comes to the United States. It's gotten people comparing what's going on in Hawaii to Pompeii. Uh, thank God the volcano didn't erupt, and uh, I don't even, I don't even know what they would do at that point. The cars are the, the cars themselves were already bursting into flame. They, they did not need the lava. They, they they did not need the lava and the magma to make it worse. But I I actually think that no comment was worse than that's not my concern. If only if only because Biden is allegedly our head of state. He is supposed to be the president. And your response to a crisis is that you have no comment? You don't have, oh, my heart, you, you don't even have the, the generic shit? Oh, my heart goes out to all those affected. Will we stand with you? Well, you are not forgotten. We're gonna get through this time of hardship together. You know, the the, the standard, I don't really care, but I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna make it seem like I care. Not even that? Nothing? You don't have, oh, it's a tragedy. You don't even have, oh, that's a terrible what's happening. You don't even have uh, nothing. There's n literally nothing. No, co no comment is crazy. Yeah, I think it's worse. I think it's, I think it's worse. And it's not even direct. Like Pence saying that America was not his concern. I think no comment is actually worse. How did we get to this point as a country? But before I move on, how do we get to this point where our politicians are just openly, uh, just openly hostile to the uh, United States? And hostile to the idea that they, as politicians and as people who hold office in the United States, have an obligation to the United States. How do we get to the point where they are openly hostile to the people that vote for them? Openly hostile to the country that they're supposed to be serving. Didn't they take the oath before when they stepped into office to protect the Constitution and uphold the Constitution? To protect the nation from enemies foreign and domestic? What, what happened to that? How did we get to this point where it is where people just casually they, they just have this casual disregard for the united states and they think that that's an acceptable position so much so that they are willing to tell it to your face where's the concern for americans in that that's not my concern what do you have to say about the the situation in hawaii no comment i'm on vacation says pete Buttigieg. When Palestine, Ohio is in turmoil? Like what? Who are these people? And how did we get to this point? It, 
man, look, people are going to be asking that question for decades. I'm telling you, because it's, it's, it really is a mystery. Perhaps illegitimate elections going back farther than just 2020. Who, who knows? But I just find it bewildering how we have these back-to-back incidents, well, back-to-back-to-back, counting East Palestine, of American politicians exercising and demonstrating a flagrant disrespect for America and for the people who live in America. And you know, it doesn't sit well with me. I really don't like that. I really don't like that. But we'll, we'll, we'll move on. We'll move on. Because after saying no comment, uh, he decided he would rather give another $25 billion to Ukraine. As So what's that? $225 billion now? $225 billion for Ukraine? Not a dime for Hawaii? And look, I'm a person who does not like the government spending excessive amounts of money. I'm in favor of fiscal responsibility. I don't even like the income tax. The government should be funded by tariffs. That And yes, we can have a modern government funded exclusively by tariffs. It's just not going to be a large government. It's going to be a very, very small and limited government as it's supposed to be. But... It is incredibly hard to argue that case, especially in the face of those who say we should have free health care, free college, free this and free that. It's incredibly hard to argue my positions in an environment where I'm essentially saying don't spend the money at all in the shadow of these people spending hundreds of billions of dollars on foreign countries. While the other side's saying, hey, If you're going to spend the money, spend it here. You could have spent that money here. You could have solved homelessness, a common critique. You could have given every American uh, first-class health care, the entire nation. You could have rebuilt our infrastructure. You could have done an infinite number of more useful things than what you did with that money. And And honestly, to a point, I agree with them. If the money is to be spent at all, and again, I'm in favor of keeping people's money in their own pockets. If, but if the money is going to be spent at all, it should at least be spent on United States and bettering United States. This guy gives another, tw- but the timing of this, again, the, this casual disregard, this casual hatred of United States percolating through our, our supposedly elected officials and our politicians. billion to Ukraine while there's a wildfire in Hawaii. You couldn't have waited a week or two? You couldn't have have waited like like a month for this to blow over before doing that? Like, at, at least give yourself some leeway. It's still a bad idea, but at least give yourself some leeway. I These people are so obsessed about narratives. How do you not see how bad that is narratively? It's crazy. And again, it's like, it's almost verbatim, almost verbatim. This has been a repeat of his response to the disaster in East Palestine, Ohio, 
And, and if you remember, way back uh, earlier this year, when a train derailed, causing a massive chemical spill, which uh, people then got the bright idea. Uh, we got some real light bulbs uh, running our country. They got the idea of burning the chemicals to get rid of them. And it turned East Palestine into a, a dead zone. There were fish just floating in the lake as these people were telling us, oh yeah, there's no harmful effects. It, it's, it's not going to affect you. As the, the dead fish just float down the river. Yeah. It, a, a, a mini less lethal Chernobyl happened in East Palestine with chemicals instead of radiation. And this guy was nowhere to be found. This guy being Biden, of course. His response, Pete Buttigieg's response, and everyone else's response, Kamala Harris, literally everyone, was nothing. Nothing. Their response was to pretend that nothing was happening. Buttigieg said, I'm on vacation. I'm, I'm having me time right now. I'm, I'm having me time right now. I can't do my job as transportation secretary. I'm, I'm, I'm having me time right now. So I, if you could just respect that and and leave me the fuck alone. While well, well, people were being hurt in East Palestine. Oh, and by the way, they gave more money to Ukraine while that was happening. While there was a, a disaster here in the United States, they were, they were at that exact moment in time giving more money to Ukraine. And they didn't, they, there was no response, no response, not even a word was said about the situation in Ohio. Not a single official of this administration showed their face until after Trump, when he came riding in with millions of packets of aid and when he bought McDonald's for everybody. That's what it took for these people to do their job. And then all of a sudden, once Trump shows up, oh, now Buttigieg finds time out of his incredibly busy schedule to come see East Palestine. Oh, now Biden has FEMA sending aid to East Palestine. It's so clear. It's so transparent that these people actually hate us. They actually hate us. And if it wasn't clear back then, it, it ought to be clear. If it, was, if it wasn't clear back then, if it wasn't clear by the fact that they're willing to throw your life away to fight a war on the other side of the planet, certainly it must be clear now. When they're giving hundreds of billions of dollars to Ukraine while Americans are actually dying in Hawaii. It's insane where we've come. It's insane what we've come to. And I, I don't know if I've articulated this on the podcast or not, but I am of the belief that foreign aid is treasonous. That's my belief. I think foreign aid is treasonous. Because we're giving American taxpayer dollars or American military equipment. You're sending American, and in some cases, you're sending American soldiers to fight and die for the pursuit of foreign interests. That's what foreign aid is. You're giving American resources, American money, American military equipment, American uh, things. 
You're giving up American possessions to foreign countries. And in the process, you are sacrificing what rightfully belongs to America, what is ours. You are sacrificing what is ours to pursue foreign interests. And in my view, that is treason. If you're willing to sacri- if you're willing to sacrifice the ability of the American military to defend America by throwing away all of our military equipment for Ukraine so that Ukraine can win Ukraine's war, you are sacrificing America's security for this uh, for potentially for the hope of Ukraine to have a victory in a war. That is treason to me. If you're willing to send Americans to die to fight a war to protect someone else's country, you want to spill the blood of Americans so that some other country can have sovereignty? That is treason to me. That's why I stand on the issue of foreign aid. I think it is treason sold to us as though it were humanitarian. And it goes right in line with interventionism, which is itself treason, sold to us as the highest form of patriotism. Fight for your country, they say, as they send you to Iraq to get your legs blown off by an IED. What American did you protect doing that? Because we certainly aren't protecting the Americans we send to die in these wars. What Americans are being protected right now by us sending a, a $25 billion on top of the $200 billion we sent to Ukraine? Who's being protected? Nobody. So why are we doing it? Oh, it's treason. Because Why? Because they hate us. Because they hate us. That's it. That's all. They hate us. And so they think that treason and this, again, this casual disrespect and disregard for the United States is a, a, a sane and rational position to hold as someone who holds office in the United States. And I, again, it really doesn't sit well with me. It, it really doesn't sit well with me at all. Like, again, if taxpayer money is to be spent at all, and I'm against the income tax, I do not believe it should be there. But if the money is to be spent, it should be spent bettering America. And no, no, funding a war, a proxy war against another great power on the other side of the world does not advance American interests. And it does not make America a better or a safer place. It literally does nothing for us, and it therefore shouldn't be done. Foreign aid is treasonous. That's where I stand. You can dis- you can agree or you can disagree. I-, I fully accept that I'm probably in the extreme on that position. But that's where I stand. That's the way I look at it. You know? But we'll leave that there and god bless those of you living in hawaii i hope you live and i hope you make it to safety and i hope that at some point along the line you'll have a government that can represent you and hopefully that's the american government at some point down the line because apparently apparently the people running the show right now hate you and they hate all of us too
So I guess, I guess that's something we all have in common, even though I, I can't relate to having my house burned down. But, you know, I, I can relate to having my government hate me. So, you know, I guess it, uh, it all works out. But we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. But last but not least, we have Russia continuing their offensive across the entire, nearly the entirety of the front. Now, I, I'll admit, I'm not usually keeping up with the war map, primarily because it doesn't move very much. But I got a glimpse. I got a glimpse. I was watching uh, Brian Berletic from the New Atlas. I think that's the name of his show. And he showed a war map. It was live, the liveuamap.com. And on the map, it had a, a number of... Uh, number of symbols, number of symbols. I'm trying to think of the right word here. But you know, I'll just run. It had a number of uh, symbols that we each symbolized different things. And when there was a rifle, it meant that there was advances being made by the sides. Now there's red rifles for the Russians and blue rifles for the Ukrainians. And wherever you see a dot with the rifle on it, it meant that that was a place where uh, if it was blue, Ukraine was making advances. They were make, doing offensive operations. And if it was red, it meant that the Russians were conducting offensive operations. So, but when you look at the map, you see like one or two blue dots. And then like at least 20 red dots across nearly the entire front line. Nearly the entire front line, red dots, with rifles on them. Meaning, indicating, according to that map, that the Russians were doing offensive operations across nearly the entire front line. With the exception being parts of the front line in Kherson. Which, you know, makes sense given that Kherson is sort of the, the furthest extremity of Russia's front. And the whole point of Russia consolidating its position where it was for the last nearly a year was to keep themselves from overextending and they were having issues for a, a good while they had to pull back from Kherson city to consolidate their line so it, it makes sense that they're not attacking from the Kherson area that they're staying right where they are and they're attacking everywhere else so that they can stay anchored along the river so to speak and they can keep their defenses bolstered there. But everywhere else, offense and barely anything from Ukraine, it was it was honestly enlightening. And I don't mean that as an I've gained a, a new understanding of the war. I mean I mean enlightening as in it's it's one thing to hear that the Russians are making advances here and there uh, in the north and that Ukraine's uh counteroffensive is stalled out. But to sort of see it laid out across the entire map gives you a, a slightly different perspective. Because, uh, wow, Russia's attacking everywhere. They're attacking everywhere. And earlier on, we brought up how they those 37 settlements Ukraine was evacuating from around Kharkov because Russian troops and artillery were advancing. So they're getting they're closing in on Kharkov. Uh, I say closing in, they're probably still miles away. But they're close enough for some of these settlements to be within range of their artillery. And I imagine that, well, they're only going to get further within the range of that artillery because Ukraine doesn't, uh, they really can't fight Russia. 
and I'm really, I'm really appreciating all the, all the thought that went into my positions early on in this war, because I said it. I, I do love quoting myself. I do, I do. Uh, I try to be humble, but you know, you you know me. I said it early on. Where the Russians choose to stay, Ukraine cannot move them out. And where the Russians choose to go, Ukraine can just put up a fight and make Russia bleed for it. Ukraine cannot stop the advance of the Russian military, and Ukraine cannot force Russia to leave somewhere where the Russians are prepared to defend it. Like they, if the Russians have like two thousand men <laughs> defending damn near an oblast, yeah, you can force them to retreat. If the Russians have a bridgehead. And that bridgehead is easy to get rid of by destroying the bridge. Okay, yeah, you can force them back. You can even, but even with the Kherson offensive, Ukraine didn't force Russia back. Russia was just in a precarious situation that they weren't comfortable with, and they chose to fall back behind the river after inflicting thousands of losses on the Ukrainians who were participating in the Kherson offensive. If you'll remember, way back uh, last summer, actually around this time last summer, when the, the Kherson offensive was going on, and then they shut up about the Kherson offensive real quick and started talking about the Kharkov offensive. Because that, that's where the Russians fell back more, because they were lots of empty land, and they didn't have enough men to guard all that territory. So they fell back. But where the Russians choose to stay, as demonstrated now... Ukraine, they can't force them out. But now the Russians are attacking everywhere across the line, and the Ukrainians are falling back. They they literally can't. They've been the Ukrainians have been slowly but surely falling back this entire time. They've only recently turned the tide briefly with their counteroffensive, and look at what it cost them to do that. Again, hundreds of tanks, hundreds of armored vehicles, dozens of artillery pieces, tens of thousands of men. You can't recover from that. So to see like two blue dots across the entire front line and uh, somewhere around 20, I'll just say that somewhere around 20 uh, red dots, all both of them with the rifles on it says, okay, Russia's Russia's making advances. This is the Russian offensive. But it also indicates to me that Ukraine's great counteroffensive has ended. I think it's while they they still narratively say that it's still going on and that there's they they have a long fight ahead and they're going to keep going till like the end of August or till the end of uh, September October. Seeing the map. And seeing no Ukrainian offenses going on in that map. Now, Brian Berletic claims that that map is pro-Ukraine. Uh, I can neither confirm nor deny that. But if he's uh, accurate in that assessment, then you have a pro-Ukraine source saying that Ukraine is barely attacking. They're on the defense across the entire line. That's That's not an offensive. <laughs> That's not an offensive, that's a defensive. And if you're on the defensive while you're supposedly on the offensive, well, okay, one of those isn't uh, true. Now, you could say, oh, it's war. 
So, of course, you're going to do defending here and there. But defending across the entire line while you're supposedly doing a, a, a counteroffensive? No. You're, you're losing. You, your counteroffensive doesn't exist anymore. They are actually being pressed by Russia to such an extent that the Ukrainians aren't even able to attack anymore. They're, they're just weathering the storm. And if you're weathering the storm and you're still being pushed back, how can you be the one conducting a counteroffensive? I think it is safe to say that not only has their offensive end failed, not only has the offensive failed, but we can now truly say that their offensive has ended. And that the Russians, the Russians are now the ones on the move. Is this the beginning of the backbreaker offensive? I don't know. It, it very well could be. Uh, and it seems to be playing out almost entirely as I said it would. Ukraine throwing away its reserves, throwing away its equipment in an offensive that they can't win in, the Russians sitting there spamming them with artillery and drones and mines, apparently. The Russians are very toxic in mines. And once the Ukrainians ran out, well, now the Russians just walk. And Ukraine has to fall back and then fall back and then fall back because they got an injection of artillery for this offensive. That artillery isn't able to keep up with the Russians. And we don't have the production to allow them to continue with the current rates of fire, where they're firing thou, where they're firing an actually decent amount of artillery shells a day, you know, like somewhere in the vicinity of 10,000, 8 to 10,000, I'd say, uh, which is significantly further up from the 1,000 that they were down to back in March. Like when they hit rock bottom, but that infusion of shells is temporary, and this offensive has been going on for two and a half months. Eventually, yeah, I don't know if you guys have seen the the movie Logan, uh, where Wolverine he starts losing his powers, and it gets to the point where he. he um, he, he's not able to fully heal from his fight with uh, X-24. So he's trying to get the kids to the Canadian border. And in the final fight, he takes the this, this medicine that basically uh, recreates a, his healing factor. You inject it into yourself and you have this, you have basically you have Wolverine's healing factor. He injects all the medicine into him. And for a, a brief moment, old man Logan is back to his prime and he's just, running through the forest, cutting down everything in his way, taking bullet, taking bullets like they're nothing, and then he just throws bodies <laughs> and cuts people in half. But then the medicine wears off. And when the medicine wears off, his healing factor's gone. Because it, it had deteriorated that much over the course of the movie. That's Ukraine. Ukraine's supply of artillery is analogous to Wolverine's healing factor in that movie. And the recent injection of shells we gave them for this counteroffensive was the medicine. 
that revitalized him and got him back to his prime for that, that brief few moments. But once those shells start to wear out, it's going to be just like when the medicine started to fade and the healing factor was no longer there. We don't have, neither we nor Ukraine has the production for that. And then I'll just, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, uh, I've spoiled enough, even though it's a pretty, pretty old movie now, I'm getting, <laughs> but it didn't end too well for Wolverine by the end of that movie. And I think it's not going to end too well for Ukraine with the way things are going. And they're, they're going to run out of artillery. We know that that's going to happen because they already did before. And it took a, they got, they had to get bailed out by United States and uh, South Korea indirectly. Who's going to bail them out this time? Because China's not, India's not. Nobody on the side of Ukraine is, has the capacity to bail them out this time. There's, which means there's no coming back. Once they go over the edge this time with their artillery, uh, with their, their artillery fire rates, it's over. They won't be able to come back from that. Uh, unless something happens that I'm just not anticipating, like, I don't know, Arabia gives them a massive injection of shells or, or or maybe the russians have some sympathy or maybe they they capture a russian uh ammunition depot you know you know it's certain things can happen in war but once uh, i feel that given what we can see once they fall off with their artillery production they won't be able to get it back up again and that's in an artillery intensive war Artillery is the killer of like 70% of all the casualties in the war. Artillery is responsible for 70% of the casualties. So in an artillery war, an artillery-driven war of infantry, because it's primarily infantry, artillery, infantry, and missiles are what's really driving this war with drones as an honorable mention. You can't lack artillery. You can't lack artillery shells. Because now you can't defend yourself. Uh, you need tanks and armored vehicles and air power if you want to mount an offensive. But for defense, you, at you need artillery. The air defense missiles work against aircraft. They work against aircraft. But if you want to fight against the attacking infantry formations, you need artillery. And if you don't have artillery, it's over for you. You need artillery in this war, and Ukraine is going to run out of our... They're going to run out of ammunition. Like, they're not lacking in drones for the time being, but the Russians are learning to counter them with electronic warfare and jamming. Ukraine needs to make peace. It's like, and we've been beating the dead horse. We've been beating the dead horse. I'll, I'll say it. We've been beating the dead horse. Ukraine need, needs to make peace. They are losing. And it's going to get worse for them, not better, until they do. But I, the trends, the trends just... Do not favor Ukraine in this endeavor. 
They're losing men. Uh, uh, reports are that they're conscripting women now to go fight for the motherland. Well, or in their case, I guess the fatherland. <laughs> but they're, they're killing generations of, of their own people who stayed back when the war started. And those that left have no intention of coming back. Ukraine is going to be a broken nation when this is over. And the longer it continues, the more broken of a nation they will be. And it's, it's insane. But what's also insane is the fact that uh, nobody in the, the propaganda press is willing to admit that the Ukrainian offensive is uh, essentially stopped and is being reversed, actively being reversed as we speak by the Russian counter-counter offensive. The backbreaker offensive. Instead, they have they have come around to admitting that Ukraine's offensive hasn't gone as planned, and it hasn't gone as well as people thought that they would, because Russia's military performed better than we assumed that it would when we suddenly decided that Russia's military was uh, fourth rate and incompetent, magically. It's it's getting bad for Ukraine. It's getting bad, and seeing that map really did give me a, a different perspective on this. Because again, it's one thing to hear that Russia's on the move, even while Ukraine's having this this counter event. It's one thing to hear that Ukraine isn't making much progress. It's another thing to see visually all the red bubbles where Russia's doing attacks and Ukraine is being forced back. They're they only captured a. a 62 square miles of land. So what, you're going to have that rolled, and it took you two and a half months and you lost everything to get it. You're going to lose that in a month now? Is that is that where we're going? Because if so, it's a wrap. It's actually a wrap at that point. That would be, you know, forget an embarrassment, that's a critical blow. Again, like we're reaching... We're reaching the apex. We, we're really reaching the apex of this war. Because at a certain point, we're, we're crossing too many thresholds that Ukraine can't come back from. You, once Ukraine crosses that threshold where they can't, where they start to fall off in their artillery shells, where they, they can't put up as many shells a day as the Russians are, once they, well, they already can't, but once they, once they fall off from the eight to 10,000 that they're already using, it, it's a wrap they can't come back from that once they all their drones get canceled in uh, by russian electronic jamming well it's a wrap you can't come back from that and it doesn't matter how many drones you get once you have i mean they already ran out of air defense missiles and that can't be replenished fast enough because the russians are now bullying them from the skies and they've already crossed that threshold so you, which is why we're seeing the presence of the Russian Air Force so heavily now. And you, you have the stories, uh, again, those mines, which are being deployed, not just by Russian missiles, but by Russian helicopter squads dropping mines behind enemy behind the enemy formations as they're attacking you. That wouldn't be possible if Ukraine's air defenses were still uh, as strong as they were at the beginning of the war. But they're not. They crossed that threshold. Now Russia's Air Force is active. They're going to cross the threshold of not having the artillery shells they need to fight back. 
that's uh, they're not going to be able to come back from that this time because there's no more injections of shells available for them. At least none that I can see right now. They certainly aren't coming back from the losses of armored vehicles and tanks. They're not coming back from that. And none of the people that they've lost are going to, they can get back any either. They're reaching the limits of their manpower pool. They're, they're very large manpower pool, mind you, but they're exhausting it. They're drafting women now. It was one thing when they were drafting little boys off the street when they were, they would have vans uh, with of uh, men with guns and the snatching little boys off the street, uh, teenagers of course not not they haven't gotten down to the five year olds yet. It's another thing to be snatching the women off the street to put them into the brigades, assuming that those reports are true. But we're crossing too many thresholds here where Ukraine is just being set up for failure. You ran out of air defense missiles, you're set up for failure. You're running out of artillery, you're set up for failure. You've lost your tanks and your armored vehicles, you're set up for failure. You're crossing too many thresholds. And at some point, it's all going to come down. It's all going to come crashing down in a what can only be described as a catastrophic defeat for Ukraine. And again, they did all that. They lost hundreds of tanks, hundreds of armored vehicles, tens of thousands of men for a, a hundred square kilometers, 62 square miles. And they're now actively losing land to the Russians across the entire front. Slowly, but they're losing it. It's... I do not see how Ukraine can win this. And I certainly don't see how, in the light of all this, they come to the decision to just not negotiate with Russia ever until Russia gets rid of Putin and pulls all their troops out of Ukraine. When this is the reality on the ground that you're facing, that's that's the decision you come to? It's crazy. We we really do live in some crazy times. I'll, I'll say that. It, it makes it very easy for me to do my podcast, though. I'll say I'll say that a million times. Oh boy, I do love having easy work here. But it's crazy as someone who's observing this from the outside in. It if it was me, I if it was me, we, we wouldn't have gotten to this point. I would have said, "You know what? You know what? Uh, I can't beat that. I cannot beat that. So we're just going to turn the game off and <laughs> We're just going to turn the game off and I'm going to go get some popcorn. (laughs) That's how this would have gone for me. But, you know, I guess, I guess to be fair, you don't have that option in real life. So, you know, I'll just extend that olive branch to the Ukrainians. But I really don't see how they pulled this one. I, I really don't see how they pull through on this. I don't know what magic trick they have where they can pull a victory out of the hat of defeat. But Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. Uh, the possibility is there. I just can't see it. I am blind to that possibility. And I don't think I'm wrong for being blind. Ugh. They can't come back from this. Ukraine, I think we've reached the high watermark of Ukraine's war effort. And from this point onwards, it's just going to be steady and constant deterioration 
which might even accelerate as they run out of artillery again, as, as they've exhausted their armored vehicles and their ability to fight back because they, they ran out of air defense missiles. No air defense, no artillery, no armor. So you can't defend from the sky, you can't defend against infantry, and you can't attack. What's left for you? Defeat. Only defeat. And while all this is going on, meanwhile in Russia, uh, like they've become the largest economy in Europe and the fifth largest in the world, measured in purchasing power parity terms. It, it, it's crazy that people would suggest that Ukraine is going to win this war. Like, even if the United States began replacing all of Ukraine's tanks and all of Ukraine's armored vehicles with our own surplus equipment, we still don't have the ammunition for them. We don't have the ammunition for Ukraine to mount another, well, certainly not more than one more of these offensives. After that, it's game over. Ukraine has one more great offensive in it. I'm, I'm going to say it now. They have, they have at least one more. I won't downplay them that damn much. They have at least one more of these great counteroffensives in them. But after that, it's a wrap. Because you can't get the artillery, you can't get the, the ammunition, you can't, you, you can't get the armor. It's a wrap. And again, while all this is going on, while we've unleashed economic warfare and economic siege of the Russians, they become the fifth largest economy in the world. The largest economy in Europe. Now, one might... Now, if we're if we're going off the, the whole, oh, their economy is the size of New York, oh, their economy is the size of Italy. If you go off that, then this is uh, a shock. But if you go off of purchasing power parity terms, they were never that far behind from Germany. And this this uh, news coming out does vindicate what we've been saying here on the podcast. You know, again, that the whole economy the size of Italy and New York State was some uh, some bull. It, yeah, we've been saying that that did, literally didn't make any sense. We've been saying that since the war began and ever since I got my hands on that uh, Big Mac indicator, um, which basically takes the Big Mac and compares the price of a Big Mac in every country to give you a rough estimation of purchasing power parity. And based on the Big Mac index, Russia's economy in terms of purchasing power parity, PPP, was roughly on par with Germany. So the fact that they're now objectively larger than Germany doesn't necessarily come as a surprise when we hear that Germany is going into recession. Um, but what's more surprising about that statistic isn't necessarily that it happened, but that it happened while Russia was under an economic siege. They're, they're under, remember, we have the mother of all sanctions on Russia, and yet they become the largest economy in the world. I mean, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. The, Oh, uh, let's, let's not get too crazy. They, they, they didn't become the largest economy in the world. They, they became the fifth largest economy in the world. I forgot the fifth. So let's, let's not go, uh, let's not go jerking the Russians off too hard now. But <laughs> yeah, I've been saying that the whole comparison between them and New York state, but the comparison between them and Italy didn't make sense. It literally didn't make sense. Cause tell me that Italy or New York, the state are capable of doing what Russia's doing in Ukraine. You and I both know damn well that neither of them are able to do what Russia's been doing. Neither Italy nor New York are sanction-proof, so that's out the window. Neither of them are expanding their trade with the war while they're at war with somebody else. That's out the window. Uh, neither of them are fielding an army of 750,000 men 
in peacetime. Neither of them are able to do that, let alone fielding the 1.7 million men uh, that Russia's commands today. Neither New York nor Italy is doing that. And you and I both know that that is the case. And they certainly aren't doing all of that at the same time while still growing their economy to fifth largest in the world. Largest in Europe. No, 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 no. Italy and New York, they might be wonderful places, but they ain't doing that. They ain't doing that. You and I both know that's that's not the case. Now, Russia's economy was set to grow by around around 1.5% this year. But considering that that number is up from the half a percent it was slated to be earlier on this year, it's completely possible that Russia's economy grows by the average 2% or more this year while under sanctions. While under sanctions. Yet, the EU, impotent as ever, is working on its... 12th sanctions package or did they pass the 12th sanctions oh who cares it's not gonna do anything (laughs) you're at number 12 give it a rest like at this point their their sanctions packages are reminiscent of italy during world war one with their offensives in the asanzo for those who don't know uh during world war one italy after they joined the war on the side of the Entente, they were fighting Germany, Austria, Hungary, and the Ottomans. Italy only really had one front line to fight on. So they were fighting Austria in the Alps along the Asanzo River. And the every time they attacked, it failed. Like every time, it took Austria, uh, Austria, Hungary collapsing from. Uh, nationalist uprisings within their own empire for them to lose the war because Italy wasn't doing it. Italy was not cutting it. Russia had gone through was Russia was going through revolution after 1917. It, it, Italy lost millions of men to do nothing. Now that might be one hell of an insult to the Italians, but uh, and I guess it could also be analogous to what's going on in Ukraine right now, but they kept attacking in the Asanzo as uh, like they had a Navy. They could have attacked somewhere else. They, and it's not like they had to protect their own coastline. The The French Navy was operating in the Mediterranean, i.e. one of the, one of the other largest navies on the planet at the time. So y- you could have used your own Navy to do some sort of amphibious landing behind the enemy lines like you didn't have to go far like you're attacking you attack just a few miles behind the enemy lines threaten the flanks and bam and you can supply it by sea if you take a port that is like there the italians had things up their sleeve that they could have done it's like it's not like they were some backwards power during world war one sure they were a laggard comparatively to say britain france or germany or russia but it's not like it was Ethiopia trying to fight Italy. <laughs> it was it, it was Italy trying to fight Austria-Hungary. And Austria-Hungary already had multiple fronts to fight on. So it's it but they kept attacking in the Asanzo. 1 uh, 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 10 11 12 battles of the Asanzo. Look it up. There are 12 battles of the Asanzo. It's it's crazy. And that that's what this is. That with these sanctions, it's it's the the Asanzo, 
except it does nothing just just like the Assange. It's so insulting. But that's what they're doing. They're doing a 12th sanctions package. If the first 11 didn't get it done, then give it a rest. <laughs> like, come on, find something new. You're spamming. You're just spamming and it's, it's not working. Stop button mashing. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. But these are our allies. Okay, these are the countries that you and I have to be ready to protect at the turn of a dime. Yeah, definitely countries we want to be allies with. Ugh. How worthless. But it's it's crazy. Now, all in all, all in all, I'll, I'll start to wind it down here. But all in all, I am really left remembering. And here I go quoting myself again. But I, I think... The, the, that the work I put into those episodes is really paying off because the things I said are coming back in a big way because I'm left remembering what I said in my second anniversary episode, given all the chaos going on around the world in Niger and Ukraine, the, the, the Middle East and impending troubles with Taiwan and apparently North Korea now too. I just can't help but remember what I said on my second anniversary episode, namely that America should use the chaos and the disruption that was already going to be there from the emerging of the multipolar world order. I said we should use that, that ch the changing times, as a perfect excuse to finally leave. Exit stage left. At least then, once we've left, at last, at last, leave. Once we've done that, we remove ourselves from our position as the world's policeman. And when you do that, suddenly things that you weren't able to do before become options like having peaceful relations with Russia, peaceful relations with China and Iran and North Korea, having trade with China, Iran, North Korea, Russia, instead of, we don't like you, so we're going to sanction you, which does nothing for anybody, especially us. We could be doing trade. Why wouldn't we do trade with the, the second largest, or in purchasing power parity terms, the largest economy in the world? Why would we not trade with China? Why would we not trade with Russia, the fifth largest economy in the world? Why, do, why would we not do that? Why not cut a side deal with the North Koreans and remove ourselves from the continent so that whichever one of them wins out in the end, we have a deal? Or hell, if they unify and say the Kim dynasty gets a, a lot of influence in the new government as, as a sort of constitutional monarchy type deal where they merge, if we have good relations with both, then even a merger between the two would be to our benefit because we'd have people on both sides invested in trade with us just as we are invested with trade with them. Like, I said it. I said it almost a year ago. We have the third anniversary coming up. But I said it. We could have used the chaos that we're seeing today as a perfect excuse to just walk away and go, you know what? We're not dealing with that. You know what? We're not dealing with that. You know what? We're not dealing with that. We're going to be over here. We're going to protect ourselves. Oh, wow. All, this, all these peace deals in the Middle East. All these peace deals in the Middle East, we could have been using that and playing off of that and going, oh, there's peace in the region. We can leave. 
oh, there's peace in the region and there's no power vacuum. Okay, we can leave. Goodbye. Sorry for all the trouble we've caused, you know. Hey, would you like a trade deal while we're leaving? You, you know, something useful. I said it back then. And now as we're seeing all these conflicts bubbling up and all this general chaos around the scene and childish behavior on the part of the Ukrainians, we could have been setting ourselves up for success by leaving and in our, in our place, leaving behind a trade deal. Instead, we decided to double down on failed policy of interventionism, military, permanent military alliances, and permanent military occupation. And it's, it's not going to end well for us. But as we're watching all this chaos unfold overseas, I just can't help but remember saying the things that I said. And I'm like, wow, what if we did what I said? I, I was so right, you know? I just... I just don't know how I do it, you guys. <laughs> but we, we could have done it. We could have finally left and stopped being the world's police right, just in time for the multipolar world order to kick in. And we could have done trade with everybody and benefited from the rise of the multipolar world order instead of fighting it uh, to the bitter end just to lose and have to renegotiate everything with everyone else anyway after the fact. We could have set ourselves up for success. We could have we we could have gone home. We could have gone home. And then once we left, we could begin to build an exciting and prosperous future for the United States. And I, I don't think it's too late. I I don't think it's too late. Not yet anyway. But like I said, I think that the United States. Uh, it might not seem like it now, given how opposed we've been to the emergence of the multipolar world order. I maintain my belief that the United States stands to benefit the most from the rise of the multipolar world order. I do believe that. Now, it's probably going to take a tr second Trump presidency for you to see that if you don't believe me. But you know what? I'll take that bet, too. I will take that bet, too. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I've got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. Uh, it's nice to not be going for two hours, but <laughs> unless I did go for two hours, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, hey, but you know what? The, the world is changing. Mm -hmm, yep, the world is changing. Lots of conflicts, lots of potential conflicts. But I think on the other side of this, we'll be living in a very different and perhaps better world. Perhaps, depending on who you are, of course. It's always that way. It's always subjective when you talk about better. But at least for the United States, it'll probably be better, you know. And you know what? That's what really counts. So, <laughs> but like we always say, no matter what happens, we will have fun watching that change together. Now, I've been your host, Tyshawn Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.